0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Happy holidays from all of us at Deep State Radio. This holiday season, treat yourself and a friend to a DSR membership. For a limited time when you become a member, you can give a friend or family member a free membership. If you purchase an annual membership, you can give an annual membership. When you purchase a monthly membership, you can give a monthly membership. Members receive exclusive bonus content, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and access to our bi-weekly notes from the sub-basement, our members-only content, written twice per week by host David Rothkoff. Act now and take $20 off an annual membership or $2 off a monthly membership. Visit bit.ly slash dsrmember member, use code holiday 2021. At checkout. That's B-I-T L-Y slash DSR member and code HOLIDAY2021. Thank you. 9, 12, 10,
2: 28,
3: 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and happy holidays. This is Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkoff. I'm coming to you from New York City, and I'm joined today by the whole gang, the originals, the Fab Four, John, Paul, and uh, You're going to start
4: a fight about who's who, David. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, maker, the candlestick maker. Exactly.
3: <laughs> and that includes, as you have already heard, Corey Shocky of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you today, Corey?
0: I'm exceedingly well, David. Thank you for asking.
3: Excellent. And, which is saying something today, since literally everybody I know including the triple-vaxxed, are coming down with COVID now. Rosa uh, Brooks is also with us. How are you today?
4: I'm very well, David. And as far as I know, I don't yet have COVID, although I'm assuming it's just a matter of time. But I am I am here in Puerto Rico, in San Juan. What?
3: Whoa. <laughs> oh, my God. Fantastic
4: <laughs> choice, Rosa.
3: You have alienated the audience. But I know. Um, <laughs> sorry, folks. On the other hand, you know, and by the way,
4: Puerto Rico should be a state.
3: Mm You're absolutely correct. It should be a state. We also have with us Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you today, Ed?
2: I am middling. Thank you, David.
3: Middling. (laughs)
4: Middling. Are you fair to middling or only middling? Is middling above fair to middling or below fair to middling?
2: Uh, I would say it's a rising trend. It's been it's been improving since the podcast began. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> that's the curative process of this and then of course we have David Sanger in Washington also how are you David
5: uh, I'm fine I was just thinking from your conversation I had my COVID a year ago this week so I gave it the office David you know I've I've, I've been there done that Leave so it to I, you. I thought I'd try to skip this round if I could.
3: Leave it to you to be a first adapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, out there setting a trend.
5: I was trying to do it before they uh, invented or or distributed. They had invented already the vaccine, just so that I had the full pleasant experience, full, yeah. full
3: experience. Yeah. Well, you're a trendsetter. We always knew that. So here we are. Why are we gathered here? It is Christmas week, and typically as these things go, we get together and we talk about what happened in the past year. And then we'll get together after the new year and we'll talk about what we think is going to happen in the year ahead. And we're always 100% right in our recollections, not in our predictions, but um, (laughs) at the age of me, at least, that's, that's something. I think we should look back at the past year and I think let's try to provide a little perspective on it. I'm going to give you each a chance to pick something out that happened in the past year that you think will help define it in the eyes of history, starting with Corey. I
0: think COVID and how governments individually and how the international community, such as it is collectively, have handled COVID is unquestionably going to be the story. I mean, it's shocking that 30% of Americans, more than that, are declining to take a free and potentially life-saving vaccine. And it's not just the United States, although we have a particularly large refusenic population, but both the availability of vaccines globally And the willingness of others for whom a vaccine is available, especially in the so-called developed world, to take the vaccine is, I think, going to be a source of enormous mystification 200 years from now.
3: Yes, I have to say it's a source of enormous mystification to me right now.
0: But Thank you the, for pitching slow and over the plate to me, David.
3: Yeah, right. It's going to get harder. By the time I get around to center, it's
5: going to be, really gonna be like, well. This thing, that and you see, I, there's a reason he never goes to me first. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I like, I'll make it challenging. Rose is going to start
5: each sentence here in Puerto Rico yeah. as I get ready to step out to the pool. Right.
3: exactly.
4: We are very concerned about climate change. We're actually we were concerned about submarines, but I'm not going to talk about that.
3: No, no, you're not. I'm going to I'm going to go to Ed first because I want to rib Uh him about the fantastic covid story going on in the UK right now, which just has everybody wildly up in arms because apparently while everybody was locked down last year, they had a Christmas party at the prime minister's house. So you can comment on that and then tell us what the other thing is that's going to be historically significant for the era.
2: Yeah, I mean, this, this seems from a distance and probably close up to be an immensely trivial sort of hook to get Boris Johnson on, that he had a party uh, a year ago during the previous Christmas lockdown and bre- thereby broke his own rules against parties, against any, any sort of significant gatherings. I sort of take it as, you know, you, you get Al Capone on the accounting principle. People know that there are vastly greater sort of Johnson transgressions, um, you know, around the procurement process, which has basically been a VIP prep friends list, billions of pounds, massively overcharged public procurement to companies that didn't exist a week before that don't know how to make protective equipment or tests and contact equipment, etc. But that hasn't been fully nailed yet. Um, And so they're, they're getting him on this. And I suppose it is something that's effective. It resonates with people because everybody does remember sticking to the rules and not having Christmas parties and not going to restaurants and not attending funerals and feeling very personally affected and that this was a sacrifice only to discover that Boris had concluded the rules are for everybody else. And that's how he conducts things, small and large. And therefore, I think this really resonates. You know, I'm not there, but people whose judgment I trust say this is the beginning of the end for him, that he's not going to come back from this. Unfortunately, when you look at the bench behind him, you rather dread what might come after him because the Conservative Party always go for the more Brexit person, the more fantastical thinker, the more ignorant public figure each time. And I'm afraid there are. Hard though it might be um, to believe more irresponsible, more ignorant figures than Boris Johnson dying to take his job. My thing of the year, although you asked for a specific event, I would have skillfully done a Corrie elision into a trend on COVID too. But she's taken that and, and done that well. So I'm going to I'm going to mention the Democracy Summit, not because I think it'll be remembered 200 days from now. Let alone 200 years, but precisely because it won't be. I think this is an example of where Biden's been a bit more muddled in his foreign policy thinking and not yet as strategic as I would like him to be. So we had our podcast last year, and I can't remember what I said, but I suspect I had slightly higher aspirations for the kind of foreign policy Biden would deliver in practice that America is back would be a a bit better thought through and a bit more effective at rallying allies to a common cause. The Democracy Summit wasn't it. It was incoherent talking shop that took a lot of time to arrange and sunk really into the Atlantic somewhere without trace before it had even finished. I hope for better next year. But right now, I'm I'm not as impressed with Biden as I was expecting or hoping to be.
3: Well, we're going to come back in in the next round and talk about just that subject. You've teed that up. Well, Rosa, something else people will remember in the future.
4: Gosh, I'm going to go with a trend, too, because if we're all cheating, I'm going to cheat. And I would go with democratic erosion, not only in the U.S. uh, and obviously very notably in the U.S., but around the world with crackdowns in India, with crackdowns by the Chinese, with crackdowns in Brazil, with coups in multiple countries, Mali, Guinea, Myanmar, uh, Sudan, etc cetera, Russian arrests of dissidents. Belarus gets an entire plane to land in order to get one guy. I mean, all over the world. Um, we talked about this a fair amount in our last podcast. We have seen both public faith in democracy, we've seen global publics losing their faith in democracy, and we have seen authoritarian leaders cracking down and and making numerous anti-democratic moves. I don't think this trend began this year. I think we've been seeing it over the last few years, but I think that with the January 6th failed insurrection here in the United States, that really cemented the sense that, oh boy democracy is in is in big trouble. It's in big trouble globally. If even here, the U.S. public is losing faith in democracy, we've got a, a really, really serious problem. So that's not a single event. It's the whole series of events. But to me, I worry that this could be the year that historians will see as the sort of inflection point where democracy went down the toilet. I sure hope not.
3: Wow, that could make Ed's comment all the more poignant. David, now, because you know, as a sort of our techno geek, you can say, you know, well, in July, we were each implanted with a tiny chip that nobody remembers We
5: when were, but David, but you don't remember <laughs> it I don't remember. It was in your vaccine, david it was actually it was earlier than that it was the secret part of the solar winds' attack, and you ah, know,
3: a, yeah, really. well, so what are you predicting that hasn't been mentioned yet? Yeah. That,
5: I would completely agree with Rosa the democratic retreat is a big theme of the year. Uh, I would never argue with Ed on anything that involves British politics, but I'm not sure in the end that whether Boris stays or goes is going to necessarily move Western civilization here. What I worry about is that when we look back at 2021, we will wonder whether it was the year in which the efforts to avoid the resurgence of a cold war may have failed that we've seen a much a great deepening of the confrontation with china whether it is over taiwan or technology exports or just the separation of the american economy and the Chinese economy in critical areas. We have seen the rise of like this old world effort by um, Putin to restore some of the boundaries that he lost when the Soviet Union collapsed. We don't know how that's going to work out. I still think there is plenty of time left for the United States, Russia and China to get on a different vibe together. But I don't see right now a whole lot of openings to go do that. And I think that the events that we've been discussing here from January 6th, which the Russians exploited and the Chinese exploited to COVID have all sort of deepened this trend because we now have a Russian vaccine, an American vaccine, a Chinese vaccine. I'm not sure you're very happy if you've had either the Russian or the Chinese one right now, but they they exist. So in a world that we thought 10 years ago was heading toward great globalization, we're seeing sort of this retreat to borders that I think matches the Democratic retreat. One other quick note about Biden himself. If you had looked at the statistics that we've seen at the end of the year, And we had discussed these all on January 1st, that you had more than 200 million Americans vaccinated, that you had the economy essentially in a vastly better place than we thought, the stock market in a vastly better place than we thought, that the challenge of inflation, worrisome as it is, is really a reflection in some ways of the boom. Then you would have thought, boy, Biden must be doing just great in the polls. And instead, what we're discovering is he's not doing great. And if you look at the economist numbers today, he's not even doing great with the younger voters who were responsible for bringing him to office. And it's that dichotomy between a president who has largely done what he said he would do, but has not seemed to inspire his base even while doing it that I
3: think is hard to figure out right now. Although it is worthy of note that he, he he has done what he said he would do. Let's take a look at what he has done on the foreign policy side. And I'm just go around and I'd like each one to offer up your nutshell critique or positive assessment of Biden foreign policy. What, it, what do you think worked, Corey? What didn't?
0: I think the AUKUS agreement worked, but the Australia, UK, US agreement agree. worked.
3: Did, did uh, Rosa pay you off? Did can't believe you, you brought
4: that up, Corey. <laughs> like,
0: <"No>, <laughs> I was going to take the bullet on
4: submarines. All right, you all right. didn't have okay, to, Rosa. I'm just going to cover my ears. What what I is think... that
5: in the water just behind uh, behind Rosa? <laughs> I'm just trying to figure it out. It looks big and nuclear. It's a shark. <laughs>
0: So, I think the AUKUS agreement worked. I think, in general, the coordination with allies on the challenges and dangers Russia is posing has worked pretty well. I think I'm more positive about that than many other people. But I think the AUKUS agreement is a demonstration that, you know, they're so so at this, they're not great. And I think the debacle of Afghanistan is going to weigh very heavily in the judgment of the administration for two reasons. First, because they looked incompetent. And second, because the visual image of people clinging to aircraft that are taking off and the heartlessness of the president's evaluation and the administration's evaluation generally about that. Maybe people expected, I certainly expected, the Biden administration to be kinder than that. And while I didn't expect them to be brilliant, right, I supported Biden for president because I didn't think he was a danger to the Constitution, not because I thought he was going to be a particularly good president. But I do think it's disappointing that they're not better because all of the crowing about America is back rings a little hollow. And if they hadn't been crowing, but had been doing, you know, boring competency a little more effectively, I think they'd be in a lot better shape, both substantively and in terms of public attitude.
3: Surely, Ed, you will say, taking the long view, David's focus on the polls is less important than his focus on what is getting done. Corey's focus on the exit is less important than the ending of a 20 year war. And if David gets to focus on the polls, the fact that polls internationally say that we're held in better standing now than we were a year ago is also reflecting well on Biden. I know you were going to stand up and defend the Biden administration that way. Is that correct, Ed?
2: I'm a literalist. I'm going to give the good and the bad. You asked for both the good. I mean, that's true. You know, starting from a from a very low bar, which he cleared exceptionally well is that he's not Trump. And that was the sort of first and foremost quality of his candidacy and his appeal to the rest, well, not all of the rest of the world, but the rest of the world that we like. And we joining the WHO, critically important in the middle of a pandemic. Attempting, I, I'm not sure very successfully, but to join the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Again, very important. I suspect too much damage was done, um, and Iran had gone too far towards breakout for that to, to produce a result. Speaking to allies with respect saying the right things about democracy, all these things matter a great deal. And it's an enormous relief that we have an American president doing that again, even if you know, I would quibble with some of the, the, the sort of execution as, as with the democracy summit. So he's way cleared to that, that low bar. He is not Trump. And that is, that is a spectacular advance. On the negative stuff, we've talked a lot about Afghanistan before, you know, whether that will have longer term consequences. I I don't know it will for Afghans, but I mean for geopolitics, I, I don't really know. What I will say is everything right now, and since he was inaugurated, since Biden was inaugurated, really does sort of depend on COVID. And I am disappointed by the lack of scale and alacrity and prioritization of the global vaccine effort by the United States. It's done. It's done more than other countries, but other countries have been feeble. And the United States should be comparing itself not to what other countries have done, but to what it could be doing and what it needs to be doing for all our sakes. And it still seems like a second or third order priority. And it really should be first, second and third. So much depends upon it. The economy, uh, America's geopolitical standing, Biden's domestic political standing. And you know, just as an addendum to that, at home, it's still hard to get home test kits. It's absurd it's really absurd. So I think my main criticism would be that the pandemic management has not been competent enough and it's not been prioritized enough. Rosa?
3: I
4: actually give the Biden administration a lot of credit for just frankly surviving this year. I, I think that this was an extraordinarily difficult moment. I think, yes, we all came in with high expectations. But I think I I don't find it particularly surprising that even a very good, competent administration didn't score any big, huge wins this year. You know, we didn't figure out how to put Putin back in a box. We didn't once and for all, uh, you know, establish with China that we are going to be the dominant power. We didn't solve climate change. You know, we didn't fix covid. Right. I mean, okay, true. But I think if you think, I mean, I mean, and this really in some ways, I think was your point, Ed, if, if you think about where we were a year ago, it's, it's not bad. It's really difficult. The Biden administration came in facing not only the structural challenges of a globalized world in the middle of a pandemic with major geopolitical tensions, but they also came in in the wake of Trump and wake of Trump catastrophes. They also have spent much of this year, they are still working hard to get key positions in the national security and foreign policy world filled with Republicans uh, just being incredibly intransigent. So we still have all these positions that are filled with people who are only acting. And given all of that, given the scale of the challenges they came in with, I would kind of give Biden this year as All you're trying to do is avert total catastrophe and and get things on a slightly more stable footing. And overall, I think they've done a pretty good job doing that, as Ed said. You know, and everything else is gravy. I mean, I wish that we had seen much more progress on climate change. I wish we'd seen much more progress on vaccine distribution. I wish we'd seen much more progress on reducing tensions, great power tensions between U.S., Russia, China. I wish all of those things, I wish, well, actually, I'll get to my one criticism in a minute. I'll, I'll hold that. I wish a lot of things, but I actually think that they have had a lot of small achievements that tend to get overlooked, but that cumulatively do tend to add up, whether it's, uh, you know, smaller achievements on trade, smaller achievements on climate change, smaller achievements on reestablishing some basic trust with allies. So we'll see what happens in the next couple of years. And I think we will rightly hold them to a higher standard, you know, as they get more people in place, as everybody just gets their footing. But I think for year one, given the mess they started with, it's been a pretty good job. The one criticism I would make is really to echo something Corey said. And here's where my instincts always differ from the instincts of uh, every single press person for every single administration I've ever worked in. I do think that the sort of, oh, we've we've accomplished so much. We're so great. We've done everything, et cetera. It's just always a mistake because everybody knows that everybody knows that this is hard. Everybody knows that the world is messy. And I would, I I have no idea how the average American voter responds to these kinds of claims. But for me, I think, no, come on, tell me the truth. Say we've we've chipped away at some stuff, but there's a lot of problems, you know, and we're still struggling with this. And yeah, we didn't get that one quite right. And it's certainly for Afghanistan, you know, I think that I think that the tone was wrong. You know, I think saying we're doing the best we could. In hindsight, we would have done some things differently. You know, we still think overall this was absolutely the right thing to do for these reasons. But we acknowledge these tragedies. We acknowledge this messiness. We're going to do our best to ameliorate them where we can. On that and many other things, I think that kind of tone would, at least to to my mind, be less off-putting to voters and to global publics.
3: David?
5: I agree with Rosa that particularly on Afghanistan, they would have benefited a lot from saying we got the, the policy right and the execution left a fair bit to be desired. Um, and I think they would have had more credibility. That said, I don't think voters in the long run are going to hold any of that against Joe Biden. I think they're going to conclude that Afghanistan has been a messy place to operate for the past 20 years. That it was messy on the way in and messy on the way out and messy every year in between, and that they will only remember that Americans are no longer fighting and dying there. I do think that Ed's right, they laid the basis pretty well. And, you know, when you look back at most administrations in the first year, you can't say a whole lot about how well they've laid the basis. The first year of Obama. The first year of Clinton, even certainly the first year of George W. Bush, though that was an unusual thing because of 9-11. I don't think that any of those have had as distinctive a change and sort of organizational directional philosophy as Biden has had. But that doesn't necessarily translate into something that we will see as success for the reasons that I, I laid out before. One thing I wish we had done a little bit better, Biden was absolutely right in saying you build your strength abroad by building it first at home. And while we're all focused on the fact that Build Back Better didn't pass in the first year, and that was a significant setback, the China bill didn't pass in the first year. And that was the core of how we were going to rebuild the semiconductor industry, invest anew in batteries and long-ranging batteries and quantum computing and artificial intelligence. And the absence of a sense of urgency about that told me that the lessons of competing with China haven't fully set in politically yet.
3: Okay, so this brings us to the uh, end of our first half hour, where we usually take a break. And before we continue on, for those of you not continuing on with us because you are Just sampling our wares, and you haven't become a member yet. I wish you happy holidays. And, uh, you know, later in the week, we've got a a podcast dealing with uh, look back at the year politically. And then when we get back after our holiday break, we're going to look ahead to the next year. So we hope you will join us for that. And do take care of yourselves. For the rest of you, hang on for just one moment. Hi, this is Harry Littman, former United States attorney, current LA Times legal affairs columnist, and creator and host of the Talking Feds podcast, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day, from voting rights...
0: Voting in our country has a specific racial connotation and a racial history, and one in which it has been fundamentally about moving away from exclusion and at a snail's pace.
3: To the January 6th Select Committee. We're going to see almost every actor who's culpable in this refuse the subpoena. To U.S. national security and foreign relations.
5: I served in the FBI in the aftermath of 9-11, and I've seen what happens when there's boots
3: on the ground. To anything and everything at the Department of Justice.
4: The hardest thing about coming into the Department of Justice, it's not like everything hits reset. There are court proceedings and investigations that are all midstream, and you don't control when you get to make a decision on those.
3: To hear roundtable discussions with the country's most prominent voices from government, journalists, and law. Follow us wherever you listen
0: to podcasts.